history, session 44. Uh, the bad qualities of the uh, Greek experience. So the first one is, I left, with, I left off with this yesterday, for the first time in history, we have breakaway sects who call themselves Judaism, even if they have no business doing so. Um, and as I said yesterday, never before had that been a dynamic. The people who were um, off the derech, there was a derech they were, they were off of. Does that make any sense? Do you follow what I just said? Meaning they acknowledge that there is a proper derech, it's just they're not following it. Okay, so they're serving a Zara. But if they ever made shuva, they would come back to the proper path and they would serve Hashem and keep his Torah and keep the halachas and keep them the, the, the various mitzvahs. Now, there are groups that come along and say, no, no, there is an alternate path and a superior path. And it all started here. This is, it's based on a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, but then it, the Mishnah is elaborated. Do you all know what Avos de Rabbi Nassan is? Pirkei Avos is often called, let's say, the Mishnah dealing with human morality. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's got some of the most important, loftiest of our ideals set down in five chapters of Mishnah, followed by one chapter of Brysos. There is no Gemara explicitly. I mean, there are a bunch of Gemaras that deal with the Mishnahs there, but there's no one Gemara on Pirkei Avos. The closest thing that we have is a collection of later of other Brises. You know, Mishnahs are versus Brises, and other Brises called the Avos to Rabbi Nassan. And here's one in the fifth chapter of Abu Rabinasan that elaborates. In the Mishnah, Antigonus Ish Soho, who we met already, he's the current Gadol Hador. Um, he's the last singular leader of Klal Yisrael in the Messiah from his time afterwards. We have what's called the period of the Zugos, the pairs <coughs> that are going to come up. So he will, he's the student of Shemir Tzadik, and Antigonus teaches that we should serve Hashem ideally, ba'ahava, with love, and he expre- explains how to do so, al al pras, he says, don't be like servants who are administering, who are serving the master in order to receive a reward, rather be like students who are serving the master, so it's not to receive a reward. So far that's familiar, a very famous central kind of a statement, um, just do the right thing. Don't expect stuff anyway. The rewards that we get in this world are not such are, are not so such rewards. Are not such rewards, and uh, that's what he teaches. The um, what does it mean? The Rambam expresses it as such in Hilchas Shuvah, and I just was reading it in this very fine book over here. Some of the variation. I think this also just came up in one of my schmoozes, maybe to my Gemara class. You know when we get stuff in this world and sometimes it feels like we're getting some kind of reward, let's say you got a really good job that pays nicely or you got a new gift or something that turns out for you in life. So Hashem really doesn't care if he makes us happy here and there. We're supposed to be happy. That's our mitzvah. Happiness shouldn't depend on external circumstances. Rather, the way, the way the Rambam, and based on Chazal, is explaining, he says, he says, everything that we get, good, bad, and ugly, everything that happens to us is really just helping us get to the next step of our tachlis, of what we're supposed to accomplish. You know that each of us is put in the world, we're all unique, and we're put in the world to accomplish certain, certain uh, things. 
uh, during this short time. And so Kaddish Baruch Hu gave us unique qualities, born in a certain place to certain parents, in a time and a place, in a geography, and with a, with a personality. And um, all of these details in our existence are all here to try to help us fix the, the particular things we're supposed to fix that perhaps nobody else could fix, but each of us individually, the Mission Sanhedrin says, everybody has to say, Bishalimi Olam, that for me the world is created because I can do something in the world that nobody else can do, and perhaps if I do it, I'll bring Mashiach. So everything is to encourage virtue, to encourage the next step. And Antigonus, in teaching the students, is trying to teach them the highest level uh, of idealism. Just do the right thing. Don't expect to receive any favors as a result of it. And it'll always work out. Well, this was one of the things. You know in Pirkei Avos, when we have these things and they're, they're brought in the name of a certain gadol, you know that the gadol didn't invent the idea and he also didn't have a monopoly on the idea? Thanks for joining us today. The, okay, I understand. The, uh, he doesn't have a monopoly. What it means is that this, in his own personal example, this person was the dogma, was a, was a role model in this. It wasn't just his calendar wall saying. It was, it was really, he, he embodied, he epitomized this idea. So that's what he said. Now, he would talk about these themes. And a couple of years, a few years later, there were two people in his audience. You can't really even call them students of Antigonus. They were, as Victor Miller describes, they were guys like way in the back of the class who thought they got it. You know, people like that. They're, like, they're, they're there and they sort of hear the class. They half hear the Rebbe and they think they figure it out. And they hear Antigonus and they hear this idea of don't be a student who's trying to serve this Rebbe on, uh, you know, to, to receive a, a, a prize. And they jump to the wrong conclusion. They hear... 2 plus 2, and they figure, oh, that equals 22. 2 and 2, 22, right? So they, what, what, what do they come up with? They decide that it means that there's no such thing as reward and punishment in this world or the next. Their names, Sadok and Baitus. Sadok and Baitus. They will be the founders of two of the original two sects in Judaism. They may know the names of the sects that they spawned. This, right, this Dukim in Hebrew, which is oddly translated as Sadducee, and Baitus would be the Baitusim, appropriately enough, and that's also translated as Baitusim. Wait, they're not around today, right? We'll get there. They're going to be around now for a, in, a, in, a, in a loud, dominant, destructive way uh, throughout the Second Temple. Uh, but you're right, I'll, I can answer the question. No, they're not around, maybe their ideas are still kicking around. There's an unmistakable overlap, but it's a mistake, I believe, to say that the Karaites were a continuation of the Sadducees. The Stukim passed away. They were no longer around. But this is the, these are the first two sects, and it all started with a misunderstood class. The, uh, another Mishnah Pergabo says that Rebbe's be careful with your words. They're hot coals. <laughs> students, be careful with your Rebbe's words. They're hot coals. And it's tricky standing up here sometimes because you say stuff and things people hear things that are not at all what you intend to be very careful they got it all twisted now initially they and then eventually their followers their followers believed in Hashem and they believed in the Torah it was just a slight detail that they got off um, but they had a real problem with this idea because see in the Torah it says all kinds of things like for example um, Right, that Hashem asher yitavlach, 
will make it good for you, or Vaharachta Yamim, there are two mitzvahs, you know which the two mitzvahs are that promise Arichus Yamim, long, long years? Shlich Khan and sending out the mother bird? Kibbut Av Eim are the two, exactly. We'll hear. Long years, Long years? Arichus, no, that's different. No, no, long years. Gotcha. Now, it does, it does, long years. The um, no, they, they you, you get long so so clearly the Torah explicitly includes a clause on schar and onish on, on reward and punishment and so these guys having half the story said well you know we got the gadolador telling us this thing you got the Torah telling us that thing it must be that the gadolador is wrong and that Chazal the rabbis who are the recipients of the oral tradition have it backwards. And when you no longer have prophets to correct them, because see, the whole thing could have been resolved if you go over to the local prophet, you say, well, what's right? And the Navi would have said, this is right. The Navi had always affirmed the Messiah up until this point, but you don't have that anymore. So they start questioning. Previous generations would have maybe turned to a Vodazara. This, again, becomes the first deviant sect in Judaism. Um, they gather students, their, their ideas will spread, it'll lead to heresy, what's called minus. Uh, I would say there's definitely no plus in it. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, they've got confusion. That's what they have in this generation. Now, um, this is also a generation when the Jews start reproducing disproportionately. They have lots and lots of babies, and there's a crisis. They don't have a lot of money. There's a crisis of education. The center of education is Yushalayim or Kodesh, but many of the people in the outlying areas don't have the money or the interest to send their kids up to Yushalayim. So kids now are being raised without much or any Torah. These new sects are much less demanding. They don't really, it does, you don't really have to do much. Uh, so if you have, you have a combination, there's a toxic combination of factors. You have Ameha Aretz, ignoramuses, who are growing up, and then they're intrigued by all these new ideas and these sects. They're also intrigued by these Likud team who are, again, is always a thorn in our side. So you, you're going to have some very destructive assimilation. I think the best way to understand the Tzdukim, the, the disciples of Tzadok, is, is as follows. And for me, this is... I have a few insights that come up. Who was I? I was just eating lunch the other day with a few people, and I just quoted this exact idea. It just comes up a lot as follows. I, I explains how a lot of people are. That Tzadukim really started with the conclusion that they wanted to be Greek. Because the Greek lifestyle was just so seductive, so, so tempting to them that they, that's what I'm going to do. But of course, if you're Jewish... You can't do that without feeling guilty. So you know what the solution is? I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, remember I, what I said about the Americans the other day? The Americans have the worst combination. They have the Greek lifestyle, but the purity and conscience. Terrible, terrible combo. Uh, so the Jews also had that, so the Tzaduki came up with a great solution. Develop a theology that integrates your lifestyle. And not only justifies it, but proactively confirms and affirms what you're doing to be correct. And yours is the best of all possible worlds. What I just described to you, if you follow that, I think describes 99% of humanity. 
most people start with what they want to do and then they work backwards to figure out how they can get there. It's the, anybody who was with me yesterday when I gave over an overview of the reform movement. It's not just reform, but it's certainly this idea is classically found in reform that they start with what they want to do, their notions of spirituality, whatever that might mean. Uh, sort of a you know a folk guitar singer up there on the pulpit telling the people everything they want to hear, and then they work backwards to uh, you know to, to, to somehow justify that that's the best way to be. Um, by the way, I mean this is certainly true in the other sects that call themselves Judaism nowadays. I think it's partly true within the Orthodox world. I tried to address this a few weeks ago. I spoke about drug use, marijuana. I talked about the guy who said, okay, Rabbi, make your argument. Let me hear what Torah says about marijuana and why I can't smoke it. And I, before I even fell for that kind of approach, anybody remember this by chance? Before I even like walked into his trap that he had subconsciously laid for me, I said, come on, you've basically decided, before I even answer the question, you're gonna smoke pot no matter what I do, right? Like you've already, that's your foregone conclusion. You want to smoke up. Okay, you're going to smoke up. What you're really looking for is what you'd like me to do is give you the various reasons, and I will proceed to explain Rav Moshe's five reasons, very nice, and they're powerful, and basically, if you're a from Jew, Rav Moshe says, oh, sir, and nothing else should matter to you. But what you're going to try to do is try to, one by one, pick off the various arguments <laughs> and disagree with them, so that you've now justified that not only can you smoke pot, but you can do so because the other, the religious arguments against it don't make any sense to you. That's what most people try to do, and he's no different, and I think many people uh, live that kind of a lifestyle. Torah, Torah says, no, there is a standard of right and wrong. You don't like it? Sorry. Uh, it's still a standard of right and wrong. If you pretend to subscribe to that system, you're going to have to do things whether they make sense to you or not. Uh, it's the other way around. We, we, that's what we call being makabal omachut shemaim, receiving the yoke of heaven, is we recognize that there's something higher than us. But that's not the tzedukim. They find Torah inhibiting, as so many people do. Uh, they pursue wealth and decadence, because that's what the Greeks are all about. Um, they're power hungry, and we're going to see throughout the Second Temple period, their passion, their obsession is to get positions of power, privileges, especially those uh, <laughs> found in the base of Mikdash, um, we'll see an increasing habit that they have of buying the kahuna. The Kohen Gadol, more often than not, will buy his position. That's why so many of them will eventually wind up dying in the, in the course of their service, especially on Yom Kippur. Uh, especially near the end of the Second Temple when they ingratiate themselves with the Romans. Ideologically, the sect, starting with the distortion, this distorted understanding of Antigonus' teachings, they reject the immortality of the soul. We die and it's over. So you live your life as best you can, but they, they reject the notion of immortality of the, of the neshama. They reject olam haba, therefore. They reject tchias amazing, reviving of the dead. Schar uh, and onish are out the door, as we've said already, no reward and punishment. Um, they say that these things are not written about explicitly in the text of the Torah, and they subscribe to what seems to be the plain reading of the written Torah, and they're not there, and so they don't believe in it. Again, what most people, most people, certainly the traditional view says, really, they, if you can put these things out of the way, what you've done effectively is given yourself a beautiful license to behave however you choose. Because if there's no Olam Haba, there's no Tchiyas Amesim, then it's literally eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you're going to die. Live it up while you can. 
And that's the lifestyle. And we already saw that that's the Greek way. That's how the Greeks built their whole cosmos. Uh, not everybody was here, but we did a whole discussion on the Greek um, mythology of the gods and the goddesses who were often more evil than human beings, thereby justifying anything that we could want to do with our own, with our own lives. And uh, that's what they... Not only, not only did they completely rationalize their way of living, but um, they wound up mocking the Frum Jews because the Frum Jews, you guys choose to suffer in this world. Uh, you're not even, and, and, and you're, not, you're, you're, you're crazy because you're not going to get anything in the world to come. Why not live it up while you can? Uh, we're pursuing the physical good life. They developed a derogatory term for the good guys, for the from Jews, who actually are the majority or the dominant views. It's just the traditional, it's the same tradition that's always been from Moshe Rabbeinu until, until our present day. So the good guys, they'll call the Pharisees. That's the, that's the uh, uh, Latin Greek term. Do you know what it is in Hebrew? Prushim. Prushim. Because they stay away from temptation of this world. That's the notion of Prushim. That's partly true. I mean, to be fair, it's not that we stay away. It's not that, that the Torah advocates complete rejection of this world. We, I mean, eat well, right? We, we get married. It's not at all an ideal to, to stay celibate. Uh, we enjoy this world, but the key difference is we do it, L'Shem Shemai. We do it as a way of getting more spiritual, of, of, of elevating uh, this world towards the spiritual. Um, but in terms of using this world solely for this world, that much the Prushim certainly stayed away from. And they were mocked by the Stukim. There would be times during, and we're going to see such times, this is all my introduction. This is going to play a major central role in the coming uh, uh, days in our discussion. It's going to look like there'll be times that the Stukim are going to overwhelm the Torah world. The whole story, I mean, in, in English we call them the Sadducees, and I have to tell you the story, well, it's sad, you see. The um, thank you. <clears throat> the uh, we're going to see historical patterns that they said they're in the model. You said the Karaites and the Reform. Um, what is also true in history is the only structure that survives is the is the traditional classic <coughs> Torah structure. Whether you want to call it the Pharisees, the Prushim, you want to call it the Orthodox, is the term that's used today. But uh, it's the same basic um, organizing principles that have always been sustained. One thing that one thing that shows that there was nothing really able mamish, there was nothing really uh, sustaining in them. Even shortly after the last Sudukim died out, they had no writings. There was no legacy. They left nothing. We have nothing from them. What we have, <coughs> how do I even know that they rejected Sharonish? Is because we wrote about them. The Prushim, the classic traditional Jews, did write about them. Josephus writes about them. Others write about them descriptively, but they didn't leave anything because it wasn't really. They didn't really care what followed. So, so uh, that was their worldview. The Baitusi, this other group, are far less numerous and far less influential, and maybe that's why people hear of them less. Josephus, for example, at the end of the Second Temple period, does not mention them. Um, the Tzdukim are a political force, constantly vying for power. The Baitusim are not. Where do we find them? They are a small group who are at odds with the rabbis, with the teachers, with Chazal. Chazal, you know the term? We've, we've been using it, right? Chazal stands for Chachomim Zichonam Livrocha, the rabbis. Um, 
but they stick to matters of religion. They have their own ideas. And a couple of famous examples, and we'll see this in history, um, they are against, they don't believe that, that, that there's a practice of taking the Arava on the seventh day of Sukkot during what's called Hoshana Rabbah in the base of Mikdash. And they, and, well, they were against the idea that it was that you could you should do it because it's a rabbinic idea, and they don't they don't affirm the rabbis, and they certainly don't agree that it should it, um, that that it's docha Shabbos. Nowadays, Hoshana Rabbah never actually falls on Shabbos, so it's never in conflict. But according to the Gemara, if it would coincide with Shabbos, it would override Shabbos observance. Um, they also famously take the verse Ein Tachas Ein, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Literally. And therefore, somebody knocks out somebody else's eye. The Torah <laughs> response from the Baitusim perspective is to blind the other person. Um, what do we say? It's the beginning of the eighth parak in uh, Perkachovil in, in Baba Kama. Monetary. Monetary. Right. Allegorical, and it means monetary. You replace the person's, um, the, the value of their eye. They, uh, you know, when is, when is Chag Masin Torah? Uh, you could say on Shuas. What's that? Giving the Torah. When, it, when does that fall on the calendar? Vav Sivan, which is how many days after Pesach? Usually, on average. 50 or right. Nobody gets we're doing this. Rias Omer counting down. You count for the day after Shabbos, and it's 49 days. But it doesn't actually say you start counting from Pesach. It says, Shabbos. And so they are among those early on who say that the Mahmas Shabbos means Sunday, Yom Rishon. The first day after Shabbos, so the first Sunday to follow after Pesach is when they start counting the Sphiris Omer, and therefore Chagmas and Torah, Shavuos, falls on different days in different years, depending when Sunday falls. That's how they understand it. Chazal's response, Shabbos, is a generic term that usually means Shabbos but could mean Yantif. And it's used, it's used interchangeably. What is a great example of what's Shabbos Shabbaton? The Shabbos of Shabbases? Yom Kippur, exactly. So Pesach can also be referred, according, referred to accordingly. They, um, later on, we're going to see they do something really nasty. Um, they get rid of the whole practice of the Mesuos, <laughs> of the fires on the mountain, the way that Chazal had of communicating when the new month was, de- was declared, um, because they hired false witnesses to go out and mess up the whole calendar system that the, that the rabbis fixed, so they had to, they found, they, the, the rabbis had to develop a different system. Okay, so now this is, this is happening in one area of life in the Jewish people, and it's a gradual process, and sometimes you're not even aware of it taking place, it comes up over the course of a generation or so. The next story is another terrible uh, stain on, on Jewish memory. Um, it's the story of what's called the Targum Shivim, which is really uh, more, it's really 72. Uh, it's this translation of the 72, or sometimes referred to in the Greek term, the Septuagint. Is this a familiar story? Who knows the story? Yeah. Really, if you don't know it, it's a very important story. Um, Ptalmi Philadelphus, one of the Ptale- uh, uh, Ptolemaic kings in Egypt. Is Philadelphus the name? It's his name. The Philadelphia is obviously a derivative of it, but his name is Ptalmi Philadelphus. Um, he is the king over Egypt, and at the time that he's king, Egypt is so vast that it, it includes, encompasses Eretz Israel. He is the first in history to gather what's called a monumental, monumental library. <coughs> he is a bibliophile, a lover of, of books, 
and he wants to read everything. He wants to completely master knowledge, which if you think about Greek society, makes sense that you'd want that comprehensive grasp of things. He would have loved the information superhighway if he were alive today. He'd be one of those Wikipedia experts. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So, so, to some degree, we're a little more selective. We certain things, certain things from a traditional perspective, we would weed out. We would we would say you can't read. But he 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 wanted to read everything. He invested a fortune in uh, in gathering literally tens of thousands of books from all over the world. And in the Greek Empire, if you controlled the Greek Empire, he had even if, if the Greek Empire had cracked into four, but you had access, you had diplomatic ties to the other parts of the life, empire, and you could bring in their books. You could uh, easily easily amass uh, am an amazing library. Have you know what happened to this library? Yeah, how do you know this? Yeah, that was the library. He started it, but that would be the in the what's called the Julius Pompeius Wars uh, near the end of the Second Temple period. The whole thing's burned down. Um, Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy is Philadelphus. What is it? Mm -mm, I don't have that in my notes. I don't think it's the original Ptolemy. I don't know how many there there were until he got there. Maybe the second. That's my guess. He is deeply, deeply frustrated that he cannot. Okay, so he can find it. He can find a copy of the Tanakh, but he cannot, in a million years, access the Tanakh because of one technical detail. It's in Lashon Hakodesh, and if you don't speak Lashon Hakodesh, then you won't have access to it. And at this time in the world, Lashon Hakodesh is the is is not spoken. It's certainly understood by the Chachamim who are sustaining the tradition in the Torah. But the lingua franca of the world is Greek, increasingly. So he cannot crack the most intriguing uh, holy text of the Jewish people, and he wants it. And he's got the means and the power to get it. So he tries to arrange for Greek translation. Initially, his efforts are thwarted. Um, interestingly, everybody spoke Greek in the world. In, down in Egypt, does anybody know what the language was? Egyptian. Actually, it was called Gypti. The term Egypt comes from that. Uh, a Semitic language. He sends a fortune in bribery to many, and eventually he buys out the Kohen Gadol, a figure by the name of Elazar El 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 ben Chonyo, descendant of these Kohen, Kohen Gadols, um, who's, who's a good guy who makes a mistake here. And he's able, he accepts the gifts from Talmi. He thinks he's, he's keeping the peace for the Jewish people. And um, he's the one who succeeded Shimi, the Kohen Gadol in Yerushalayim. And he sends down, it's actually not 70, that's a misconception, it's 72 Kohanim, who are all Chachamim, together with the Sefer Torah, for the purpose of helping Talmi crack the book. When they get to Egypt, they're greeted with a rapturous reception, a kavod rav, 12 days long of celebration, kosher food. Uh, they astound him. These 70 Tukohanim astound the, uh, the, the, the emperor with, with their wisdom individually and collectively. And then he's ready for his plan. He has prearranged um, a nearby island that's divided into 72 uh, large cubicles, units, Houses, each more one more luxurious than the next, um, and he sends them separately. Each is now assigned the task of translating 
individually. If you want to see an elaboration of the story, I refer you to the Gemara in Megillah, Tesselmet Aleph. No, that would be interesting. I don't think we know which island it was. Not so many, but there would be there there there, there could be could be it could be something else that doesn't exist anymore. For all we know, every day the Gemara tells us that each of these Kohanim, these Chachamim, toiled in the sea. They davened to Hashem. They were from. They wrote. They lived in what's described as a Gan Eden of splendor. Uh, all their needs are met as long as they need. The goal, of course, come out with a good translation. And why 72? Because if 72 men are going to write the same book, Talmud can rest assured that they did an authentic job of translating it. And he can compare the translations one against the next. Now, it's not clear that they're fully aware of the ramifications of their project. Maybe they vaguely knew, but you know that the Torah is not supposed to be translated. It's a grave Easter. It's not meant for anybody. Um, in fact, the seventh parent of the Gemara in Sanhedrin says, Goy Shalamet Torah, everybody know this halacha? Goy Shalamet Torah, Chayev Misa. A non-Jew who learns the Torah is, uh, it's a death, pen- death penalty, uh, subject to capital punishment. Um, don't get any vigilante ideas. I have taught this one before, and I think people are all ready to go out, you know, and like go out in a posse and go round up, uh, you know, who are, who are sitting and learning on Tyra. No, you don't have to go to South Korea. There's a, there's a, you've heard the legend about the South Koreans buying the R-Scroll Gemara and learning the Gemara. I think it's one of those urban legends. I used to say it, and then I looked into it, and it doesn't seem to have any validity. I'm sure some people buy it, but not to the degree that it's... Said. But there are people out there for sure these days who are learning our Torah. They're not supposed to. Uh, there's a prohibition. Um, we're not allowed to teach them Torah as an extension. How about Christians, which, were, which are historically Jewish? What's that? How about Christians? Like they read our Bible, but they're historically Jewish. Stay tuned. I'm going there in a second. I'm going to turn your question on its head. So, 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 so give me a second. The, the Torah, I'll tell you why. There's a very, it's not because we're elitists. And our Torah, I won't play with you in my sandbox. You can't, I won't share my Torah with you. It's not about sharing. Torah, this is based on a, Vilnagon, a, piece, of, a piece of learning from the Vilnagon. Torah is the most potent form of spirituality in our existence. That's pretty easy, right? That, that, that much makes sense to us. Torah is like rain. Rain can nurture fruit trees. It can also sustain poisonous plants. In the right hands, Torah can lead to tzitkus, to righteousness. In the wrong hands, it can be devastating. Misunderstood, twisted out of conception, um, and sometimes made, made into a, a mockery of itself. And I don't know what comes to my mind, the conservative rabbi who proved from the Torah that um, uh, homosexual marriage is l'chadchila good. And those kinds of things. You twist it and make make of it whatever you want when it, when it's when it's not when it's not properly learned and and, and, and taught and transmitted, um, and they don't realize exactly where this is going to lead. They have a delicate position, though. You know, the king of their empire is making this demand. They do know enough to realize that if their work becomes published and well known, it might provide fodder material for heretics to be able to quote the Torah, to misquote the Torah. But then on the other hand, they can't mistranslate and cause the king to feel that, he, that they've done so intentionally because then they're going to be in trouble. So they have, a Kaddish Baruch Hu does a nace, and, he, and they each experience Ruach HaKodesh, a kind of divine inspiration, 
they all translate word for word an identical translation with exactly 13 exceptions. And in each of those 13 exceptions, they make a change to the work. And again, I, I refer you to the Gemara Megillah that analyzes those exceptions. Why, had they translated it more literally, it would have led to a real misunderstanding of the Torah's meaning. Uh, so they deliberately changed the translation. And after 72 days, they, all, they each simultaneously finished their project. Um, there is a question, what did they exactly finish? It's, they might have either finished translating the entire Chumash, five books of Moshe, or the entire Tanakh. It's not clear if the Tanakh is included. What is true, though, is that the 13 changes were all in the Torah. Yeah, that makes sense? The king rewards them. He's besides himself with excitement. He actually goes so far, goes so far as to bow down to the translations itself, the collective translations themselves, as if he's to worship them. He makes a massive celebration. The day is the 8th of Tevis. And it's described as a day that's more bitter, more difficult for Klal Yisrael than the, when the Jews made the Egel HaZahav, the golden calf. In fact, in fact, back in Jerusalem, they fast, and we still fast today. I mentioned this, Asara B'Tevis is, is a day of fasting mostly associated with breaching the walls in Jerusalem, but it also combines all these fasts, the 8th of Tevis, which is the Targum Shemim, that's the story I'm telling now. What happened in the 9th of Tevis? I just said this the other day. A couple people die. The yard site of the 9th of Tevis, Ezra and Nehemiah's yard site, and then uh, these, these, all these events. The... Uh, Gemara and Sanhedrin tells us the ramifications of what's just happened now. Goyim now can steal the Torah. They can translate it into other languages. They can distort it and turn it into, into all kinds of fabrications. Um, in fact, not only will Goyim take this translations, sometimes even more tragically, Jews learn the Septuagint before they even get to the Torah. But what happens is, what's the Septuagint? The Septuagint, which is the Greek term for the translation of the 70, is even more distorted than the original version of the Targum Shivim. It's, it's, it's really out there in a lot of ways. Um, in fact, once you get to the King James, anybody seen a King James Bible, Christian yeah. Bible? Yeah. When you get to the... Lots of changes and, and, and weird stuff. When you, you open a King James... Think about it. King James Bible went initially from the Hebrew to the Greek to what's called the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, back to Greek and then finally into English. It's really a telephone operator game. By the time you actually get around to it, it's so twisted. I told you the story, Rabbi Beryl Wine tells the story of the nun who comes to his shul and she wants to say Tehillim. And he said, well, let me see your Tehillim. And she said, it's just a book of Psalms. We have the Psalms, you have the Psalms. What can be the... It's really your question, Elon. Well, what can be the problem, right? We're just saying Psalms. So he said, well, let me see it anyway. So he opens up and he says, he looks at the whole thing and he says, yeah, you can say everything except for that line. And she said, well, what's the problem? And he showed her the Hebrew and explained to her the difference. He said, the line that's a bit, yea, though I walk with all the King James, that awful English stuff, yea, ye, though I, they, thou, thoughest, you know, thou, they, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Right, what Gamki Elech Begates Imadi, we sing it on Shabbos, right? So even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of the death, the, the text that the nun had in her hand, my Lord Jesus, my Lord and Shepherd Jesus will be with me. He said, That's not in the original. And he showed her the original, and she had this moment. She said, 
Oh, she had this like big revelation. She said, all these years I thought you Jews were being so stubborn. In your own text it talks about Jesus as saving humanity. And you guys refuse to acknowledge him and believe in him. She said, I never realized. Not in the original text. Um, <clears throat> many of the Mepharshim talk about this. The Rambam, for example, points to the many theological errors just based on mistranslations alone. The most famous for the Nutzrim, maybe I'm sure Rabbi Lazarus Shlita, who just spoke about this, would have brought this out. What's the most famous egregious mistranslation? They see anticipation, a precedent for the virgin birth in the term um, Hine Alma. An Alma is going to give birth. Right. Alma in Hebrew is Hebrew for young maiden. Basula is the term for virgin. There is no precedent for virgin birth in the Torah. Right, but they—how would they know? They're working with a, a, a mistranslated version of it, and there are many, many others. Um, Tanhuma, the Medrash tells us that a Kaddish Baruch who predicted there would be a, tra- a targum and that it would lead to catastrophe, Goyim would come around who would claim that the text referred to Israel and they were the real Israel. And other religions will multiply and twist and continue to deceive in the name of Torah. And of course, most famously, the Christian nation would come along. And it's true, Elan, you're right. They began as Jews. Today, overwhelmingly, eventually they spun out and would not be Jews. But that's irrelevant. Um, they will, when every time it says Israel in the text of what they call the Old Testament, they assume that's talking about the Christian world. Because we're, the old Israel is no longer Israel. We're the, we're the despised people that refuse to see the Savior. Um, you know that, how do they look at a text, for example, of Avram bringing Yitzchak up for the Akedah? That was God bringing his beloved son, Jesus. And when, you know when Jesus went and saw the burning bush? Remember that story of Jesus burning the burning bush? Okay, it says Moses. Details. Yeah, that's how they read it. That's how they read it. And they'll use the text. They'll use the text. Anybody was with me on the tour last week. We talked about the, the, the public disputations. This is going to stay with us as a, as, as a plague, as, as a blight to the Jews throughout their history, how the Christians will take the, their version of the translation and, and use it as, a, as a, an excuse to bully and persecute Klal Yisrael. It was never meant to be written. And that's a tragedy, and we fast in that. Coming in a few weeks, Asar Batavis will be part of the reason for the fast. Um, now, a little bit of consolation was given to us. Okay, cat's out of the bag. They got our written Torah. Terrible tragedy. But at least we can feel comfortable with the fact that um, the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition, which is really everything. Because if you don't have Torah Shabal Peh, you don't even have Torah Shabal you don't know what ayin tachasai, you don't know what an eye for an eye means unless you have the guidance of Chazal to interpret it for you. So at least we, we felt okay in the fact that, you know, they didn't get that. Um, and by having the oral tradition, which is now manifested in classic books such as these, the Talmud, um, so, um, so then we really have the true system and theirs is a corrupt, distorted alternative. Um, of course, if you are you listening to, if you're following everything I'm saying, something should, you should be sinking in your seats and realizing what I'm saying. The ramifications: we're alive and we're we're, we're witnessing a generation now in which the Torah Shvalpeh is increasingly also the cat's out of the bag. With all the proliferations of the many translations, the art school is only one of the latest in a series, but there are lots of translations of our oral tradition out there, and that's generally not good for the Jews. Generally, generally a problem as it gets at, as it gets into the wrong hands. 
Um, Antigonus Ish Soho is the last singular leader of Klal Yisrael. Doesn't mean there's not going to be. Sometimes we're going to find generations where there's one decisive Gadol, but not in this quite, not in the same organization. For the next five long generations, we're going to follow this period, what's called the period of the Zugos, the pairs. Um, that's not the fruit, but the two, the couples who will lead Klal Yisrael. One, Anasi, the other, an Avbeistin, uh, two figurehead positions. Um, if you know the first chapter, Pirkei Avos, there's a big discussion about each of these generations. Um, and the first figure from this period is one of Antigonus' kosher students. His name is Yossi ben Yochanan, comes from Yerushalayim. He too, like his Rebbe, is described as an eshkol. Who remembers what an eshkol is from yesterday? Uh, it's true. It's a grapefruit, uh, or a cluster of grapes for that matter. But in, in, um, in, in this meta, uh, the figurative terms, ish shakolbo, he has everything. His has his wisdom and, and greatness and, and everything wrapped up. So that, that was him. He's called the Av Beistin. He's, he's leading the Sanhedrin. Um, he was the next in the Messira, next in line. Um, he, for a period, is the sole leader. I have to say, he does. he's not the first uh, replacement for Antigonus is, is just Yossi ben Yochanan. Um, but what happens is the corruption grows so great that they um, add a second member, the 72nd member of the Sanhedrin. You know, ordinarily there should be 71 members, but they, they took on another one, um, who now they call the Nasi. The Nasi is the other figurehead, and the Avbeistin becomes his assistant. And the, the other person is called, just to keep things nice and confusing, Yossi. So it's the generation, it's the Zug of Yossi and Yossi. Uh, the second Yossi is Yossi ben Yoezer Ishtreda. He's also an Eshkol, he's also a student of Antigonus. He's the first Nasi. Uh, he was a Kohen who was on a very high level. He ate what's called Chulin Bitahara. Do you know what that means? Even the ordinary food that he might have been able to eat in, in a state of impurity. He was careful to always make sure he was pure. Do you know what it means to be pure? I know we, had, we started our whole conversation earlier today with pornography. I'm not talking about that kind of impure. But there was such a thing in the days of the base of Mikdash of, um, of Tuma and Tahara. And it was su such, it is such an immensely complicated area of halacha. Do you know that when the base of Mikdash will be rebuilt, today, what are our major shilas in, in terms of halacha? We have shilas for posting. What, what do we ask about? We talk about. Could, but I'm saying, like, what is an average, what kind of shyness does an average post deck have to deal with? Why can I have an idea? Can I go to idea? What? What? I don't think so, so much. Maybe, like, idea. I'm thinking about Kashrus. Rebbe, I, you know, I drop milk into the cholent, what do I do? Shabbos issues come up a lot. Do you know that back in the day, Tuma and Tara were the big issues? If your kid's sister was menstruating and couldn't sit in her chair, you'd have to know that. There are all kinds of ramifications of, of what, makes, what makes somebody a Tahora. It was a qualitatively differently kind of a different kind of life, and Yoshi Ish, Ish, uh, you know, Ben Yoezer was very careful even to eat his regular food in a state of tahara. Um, he's also much younger than 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 the Abbasian than Yossi Ben Yochanan. Yeah, it could be your daughter too. I think I just use kid sister as an example. There are it's complicated. Yeah, you'd have to know. She'd have to be she'd have to be open about it. Say just some random woman, would you be allowed to 
Also true, but usually you would know. In other words, you wouldn't sit in a, in a, in a seat with a, ram, with a, a random woman would have sat in. By the way, the, the problem is mostly no, no, Jews. No, Non-Jews non -Jew, non don't generate the same tumor. Let's say it's on the train, though. Could be a problem. Or a yeah, in a life will change. Life as we know will change when the base of Mikdash is built. The uh, generation continues to decline, and that's reflected in the next major issue. It's the first machlokis ever. Remember we mentioned this? There was no machlokis in the world in the days of the prophets, because you asked the Shaili, asked the prophet, he told you what the pshat was. Period. No discussion. Now you have, anybody know what the first machlokis was over? Oh, it was yeah. between Yossi and Yossi. They argued this. Excellent. Uh, no, but you're, right, you're on the right, right track. It's the korban, the couple korbanos. What's called the Shalmi Chagiga and the Shalmi Simcha. Different korban shlomim. Whether on Yantif, it's a very particular machlokis, whether on Yantif one does smicha, smicha being, excuse me for demonstrating, placing one's hand on the animal and leaning on it, whether one should do that or not, by doing that, does that is that too much physical exertion? Uh, too much physical exertion? Uh, or not, or, or it's okay, you can do that kind of thing on Yantif. Um, what's that? That's the first machlokus they simply didn't know. And every set, every zug in the, in the subsequent generations will continue having this machlokus. Where the Nasi, uh, the Nasi says it's Osir and the Avbasin says it's okay. Um, the whole issue is going to remain unresolved until Hillel, the great Hillel, finally they say you can do it. It's Mutter. It takes a while. Um, when Yossi ben Yochanan, the Avbasin die, dies, and it's such a tumultuous time. Um, all this is happening simultaneous with the Greek, with the rise of the Greeks and the persecutions that are really right out of, you, can, you feel like you're learning about the Holocaust all over again. Um, we're going to focus on that more tomorrow, but I have a few more details for today. Um, anyway, all this is happening at the same time. It's such a difficult period that um, they, don't appoint, they don't immediately appoint a successor. Uh, Torah continues to be forgotten. Jews are assimilating, uh, learning the Greek ways. The Gemara in Baba Basra talks about the end of the other Yossi, Yossi ben Yoezer's life. Um, he has a son who does not behave well. He's a bad guy, gets involved in, in Hellenism. When I use the, use the term Hellenistic, Hellenism is another way of describing the Greek culture, for the record. So he becomes Hellenized. And so Yossi decides, Yossi had, was a man of some means, he had some money, and he decides in his will not to leave any money to his son, to his corrupt son. By implication, I think yes, but I don't know for sure, so I, that's why I'm pausing. The, uh, so what he does is he, he, he writes his will, and he dedicates everything in his, um, which is something you could do, he could write such a will, everything when I die will be dedicated to the base of Mikdash. I'm Makdish, I will be posthumously Makdish all of my, um, all of my property, all of my estates. He says, at least this way, my son who should have inherited it, and he's not leading a very good life, my son should get some reward insofar as you know, the money that would have gone to him is going to Hektesh, and he'll get some credit for that. The son found out about it. And he could have reacted in a lot of different ways. He reacts positively. He hears the whole thing, and he's so impressed that it motivates him to make tshuva. And it's an interesting comment on money and what you do with it. We know of a lot of rich people who actually destroy their children with their money. Kids who grow up with two, two silver spoons in their mouths. 
Um, you have to know, you have to be wise how to do this. I think you know, we can learn things from, we can learn positive things from all kinds of people, including non-Jews and Jews and everything. I think they say about Bill Gates that um, in his uh, will, he's leaving a relative, relative to his estate, small amount for his children, which they may, I don't know how they took it, or they're taking it, maybe they're resentful, but he's doing them a great favor. Oh yeah, uh, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett, he's leaving uh, only 30 million, but relative to Warren Buffett's estate, has, what, exactly, exactly. I, I would say I would say that that's they, they're doing they're doing their kids a favor. Anyway, we learned that we learned that from Yossi Ben Yoezer. Um, yeah, I, I, he's going to die, but I'm going to save the story of his death because it really fits into the the, the terrible um, events that will that will take place. Um, in, in, it really starting tomorrow. We're going to talk about the Greek oppression, and really we'll, we'll, we're going to be winding down to the Hanukkah story. The um, I have I have a problem with this time in history, and what I've been telling you all this time is that I try to teach history in the most intellectually honest way I can. Some of the stuff I haven't figured out yet; it just doesn't add up to me. And the following is just one thing. I, it's, maybe it's a technical issue, but I don't think it's a small issue. I, I don't really get the dates of the zugos. There are, as I said, five generations of zugos. That, zugos, these pairs that span most of the Second Temple period. And it, it, you'd have to say that at, like the second and third pairs lived unusually long lives. Um, in fact, some say like Yoshua ben Prachia must have lived about 144 years. But then if they did, shouldn't that be commented on somewhere? It's, it's extraordinary in these days. Usually people were not living such long lives. When we hear about great figures who lived to be 120, that's famous and well-known. And we're going to see, we've already seen two of them, and we're going to see three more coming around the corner who lived 120 years. So somehow we're going to, the, the dating, the matching up of this period, in my mind, is one loose end of history that doesn't match up. I don't really have a problem with it. At the end of the day, Zakanish Baruch Hu will, will get the whole revelation, we'll understand how it all works. Uh, meanwhile, we accept the Messiah and we realize that not everything is comprehensible to us. Uh, tomorrow, come on time, we're going to talk about the Hanukkah story makes so much more sense when you understand the historical context, you understand where it's coming from and what, what the lead up, what the build up to it was. So, Ms. Rasa send that first thing tomorrow.